first moved to uh, California back in 1961, we lived uh, in an Eichler home. Eichler was a California builder. Some of you that came from that state will know what I'm talking about. And uh, those homes had a, a great deal of glass in them. Our The side of our kitchen was all glass, and you could look out of that uh, through that window to the back of the garage, and about a third of the garage was uh, glass. I was sitting in the kitchen one day uh, reading and uh, drinking a morning cup of coffee, and I heard the glass shatter in the back of the garage and uh, saw this dog come plummeting into the backyard and fall over on his side, and uh, apparently he had knocked himself unconscious. So I went out uh, into the backyard, and just about the time I reached the dog, he jumped up, ran off, and I realized what had happened. Uh, there were, he had chased a cat into our garage. The garage door was open. And the cat had either stopped abruptly in front of the glass or had made a sharp turn, and the dog just kept going right through the glass. So I had a big open expanse to uh, cover up, so I, I found some plywood, big plywood sheet in the garage, and nailed it over the opening to keep the rain out. And I uh, went back to reading. And about a half hour after I had nailed that piece of wood on the door, I heard uh, over the opening, I heard this crash, this resounding crash. And I went back out into the backyard, and there was my son, who was about five, Brian, lying on the board. He had a Raiders helmet on. And I realized that uh, he had seen that dog go through the window, and he had gone back to his room and put on his Raiders helmet. And uh, he did the same thing. He ran through the window. And uh, I thought for sure that what had happened to him is what we always say is going to happen to our kids. You're going to break your neck. Uh, But he hopped up as I went out into the backyard to rescue him, and he looked at me, and he said, Dad. God has really made me strong. And And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, how God makes us strong. I I know that uh, many of you come to a gathering like this uh, just decimated by life. Uh, Life has a way of innervating us, draining us of, of strength, leaving us weak and impotent, unable to cope. That's why it's such a delight to teach a passage like this, because this text has to do with being made strong, how we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord. I'm just going to read the first six verses of uh, the chapter and occupy our time this morning talking about that one phrase, David strengthened himself in the Lord. David and his men reached Ziglak on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziglak. They had attacked Ziglak and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They had killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed. Actually, the word means uh, to be under intense pressure. 
because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. For me, the, uh, the significance of that phrase, David found strength in the Lord is good, lies in the historical setting. Let me refresh your mind a little bit about uh, David's life and the events that had preceded this, uh, this terrible tragedy. About 12 years before, David had been anointed uh, king over Israel by Samuel. And for a period of time, it appeared that God was paving his way straight to the throne. He became uh, Saul's favorite after he killed Goliath. He was his uh, court minstrel, bodyguard, armor bearer. Later uh, was commissioned as a field commander in Saul's army. Gained a position of great prominence in the nation. They made up uh, hymns and songs, stories, tales, epics about David. But his popularity was the very thing that inflamed uh, Saul's jealousy. And as you know, Saul tried to kill David on two different occasions, put out a contract on his life. David fled into the wilderness. And as we've looked at these these preceding chapters, we've seen David descending deeper and deeper into the wilderness and deeper and deeper into depression and despair. The poems that he wrote during this period uh, reflect that uh, discouragement. It was a bleak, dark period of his life. And finally, as you know, he fled to Philistia, Israel's ancient enemies, took refuge with uh, King Achish of, uh, of Philistia. Uh, it was the wrong thing to do. Uh, God had promised that his, uh, not only David, but his line would endure. And through that line, God would bring salvation to the world. But David had a great lapse of faith, fled into Philistia, cozied up to the king. king gave him a place to live, Ziklag. And for 18 years, 18 months rather, David lived there. The, the significant thing about this period of David's life is that there, there's no poetry, no psalms, no prayers. In fact, the name of God doesn't even appear in those chapters. The only one who calls the name of the Lord is the pagan king, Achish. And then perhaps David's greatest tragedy was the fact that he was conscripted to serve with the Philistine army. This is what you all, the passage you all looked at last week, that great gathering uh, of the Philistine uh, army at Aphek. And, and their plan to, uh, to split Israel in half, to drive across the plain of Israelin and once for all bring Israel to its knees. And uh, David and his mercenaries were drafted into that uh, into that great army, David felt obliged to follow because uh, Achish was his leech. He was his king. Like a medieval setting. He was like a serf that served his king. Had to go. And it looked like David would be forced into fighting his own people and, and Saul and his beloved friend, Jonathan. Although it's not apparent in, 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 in the chapter itself, it, it seems to me that at that point, David began to turn to the Lord. Perhaps it was even Achish's comment about uh, the Lord, his God, David's God, that reminded David of the Lord's presence. And he began to turn to, the God, uh, turn to his God and call on him to extricate him from the mess that he had, he had made of things. Uh, F.B. Meyer says, if by your mistakes and sins you have reduced yourself 
into a position like this. He was referring to David's position. Don't despair. Hope still in God. Confess and put away your sin and humble yourself before him. And he'll arise to deliver you. You may have destroyed yourself, but in in him will be your help. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, happened. God opened the door of hope. The Valley of Achor became a, a door of hope to David. The Philistines themselves uh, dismissed David. They didn't want him in their army. They were afraid that he would uh, turn against them. And he, he sent, they sent David back, uh, back home. And so David and, men, and his men heaved a great sigh of relief. And they turned from the battlefield and they began to make their way from word home there's a song that i country western song that i heard years ago and it keeps ringing in 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 my mind i I don't remember anything else about it but just a couple of lines uh the the best part of traveling no matter where you roam is the turning turning for home and uh, david and his men turned toward home and they began to think of the welcome that they'd received from their wives and children i can remember coming back from trips when my children were small and anticipating coming home and being greeted by Carolyn and the kids they'd all come running out the front door grab me by the knees not not Carolyn but the kids <laughs> there'd be a special meal that she'd prepare you know, it's just wonderful to look forward to David and his men were exhausted emotionally wrung out weary and made that long three-day trek from Aphek to Ziklag, came over the last rise, looked on the horizon, saw that smudge of smoke, and their hearts sunk. And they realized something tragic had happened. Ran the last mile or so, I'm sure, reached Ziklag, and instead of the welcome of their families, there was silence and desolation. It's the crackle of the fires that had been left behind. Their homes were destroyed. Their their wives, children had been taken into slavery. Perhaps only the old people left behind to tell the tale. I mean, you can imagine what it must have been like. Can you imagine coming home from church, finding your home burned to the ground, your children gone, everything that you possess gone up in smoke? You know? David's life just fell apart. He dropped his weapons to the ground, put his face in his hands, text says he wept until he didn't have any strength to weep anymore. And he felt this terrible sense of isolation, a cold, hostile stares of, of his men that he had, he had disappointed. They wanted to kill him. Uh, I mentioned that the text says he was greatly distressed. The word comes from a word that means to, to be under intense pressure. And the text itself explains why he was under pressure. His men hauled out their swords. They were ready to put him to death. They were furious at him. Should have left a, a guard behind. And why he didn't, I, I have no idea. You just have to you just have to sit down and think about this terrible sense of loss, bitterness, isolation that must have swept over David. His own personal loss, loss of his home, his family, his children, sense of personal responsibility. These men and women had gathered to him, counting on him for, for, protect, for, for protection, and he failed to plan. Let him down. There's no human hope, no chance of redeeming the situation. He knew that the uh, 
Amalekites would, would sell his family, families of his friends, into slavery. That was the pattern then. They would either make slaves of, of them or take them into Egypt and sell them into slavery. And the Amalekites were mounted on camels. David and his men were on foot. There was simply no way that they could catch, catch up with them. And, and I think underlying it all, David sensed the righteous judgment of God. There was a kind of a poetic justice in all of this. David had time and time again uh, burned Amalekite cities and massacred the entire population of, of these cities. And he realized that the Amalekites were simply taking vengeance on him. You just sense how his heart sank. He had nowhere to turn. Then you have this wonderful statement. David strengthened his heart in God. This was, I think, David's blackest moment up to this point. But he strengthened his heart in God. I thought a lot this past week about David's uh, heartbreak, his misery and, and despair. That's a perfectly natural reaction. So what happens to you when your spouse walks out or you get that pink slip in, in your box at work or your house burns to, to the ground or some other tragedy uh, strikes you. Uh, sorrow breaks our heart. That's the natural reaction. But the natural reaction is fatal. And if we t- continue to brood over the, uh, the harm and the hurt and the pressures of life, it will in the end uh, destroy us. David said of this occasion, or some suggestion that Psalm 77 was written at this point. David said, my soul refused to be comforted. It's tragic. It's fatal. Uh, we read uh, this last week, week before last, of the death of uh, Kurt Cobain, the uh, grunge poet, head of the uh, rock band Nirvana. For familiar at all with the lyrics that made him famous. They're just full of despair. The limitations uh, that uh, this particular generation, the, the younger generation, uh, has to face. Uh, took his life. Took his own life. Some of you may have seen the Statesman cartoon yesterday. Cartoon, if you can call it that, showed a picture of a young man, long hair, standing at a crossroads. and One, one arrow pointed uh, to the left, one to the right. The arrow had Kurt Cobain on it. The arrow to the right had life. And that's the choice that so many people are facing. I would be willing to bet that some of you here this morning are seriously thinking of taking your lives. You have nothing left to live for. You're in utter, absolute despair. As David was. You've wept until you cannot weep any longer. And there's just this terrible sense of isolation and loss and loneliness. And you're at that why. You have that choice, life or, or death. That's why I say the natural react, reaction is, is often fatal. But what I want you to see this morning is David's reaction to his natural reaction. He strengthened himself in God. Uh, more literally, he strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. The pronoun struck me as, as I read through the passage again this past week. I've commented before that Martin Luther said that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. Even though David was, uh, at this point in his life, a long way 
from the Lord. He was still his Lord. God had not forgotten him. God had not forsaken him. But the question that crossed my mind is, uh, how do you do it? How do you strengthen yourself in God? When you come to the end of your uh, limited resources, when you've got no place else to turn, where there's no human help or hope for you, and you want to strengthen yourself in God, how do you do it? What steps do you take? Is there some magic that God works on you that you just, like my Brian, just feel that God has made you strong? Something you clamp on your head to, to make you invincible? How do you do that? And uh, that set my mind to thinking back over what I do to strengthen myself in, in God. I, I, uh, let me say, first of all, I think the basis of it is to make yourself think about God. Well, what do you know about God? Now, that presumes that you know something about God, which also presumes that you're reading the Bible. That's how you find out about God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I don't know any other way to find out about God. It doesn't come from sitting on a warm rock. It doesn't come from some guru in Peru. It comes from uh, reading the word of God. And the purpose of reading is not to erect a, a theological system. The purpose of reading is to find out who God is. I've pointed out before that our Lord's name means he is based on the verb to be. Yahweh is uh, one form of the Hebrew verb to be. I am, he said. That's what. That's who I am. He is. And it struck me one day that the whole Bible is the means by which we fill in the blank. He is what? Well, read the Bible and find out what he is. So the first step is to, is to read the scriptures and find out who God is and then begin to remind yourself of what's true about God. Despite your circumstances, despite the pressures, despite what others are saying to you, begin to remind yourself of what you know about God. You have to get your mind right, as Cool Hand Luke used to say. You've got to get your mind right. See? All growth in the spiritual life is a function of, of knowledge. It's what we know. God works through the mind. He teaches our minds. And then as we reflect upon what we know, he begins to change the way we respond to our circumstances. Paul says, present your bodies, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of service. And don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your minds. Let the word of God teach you what's true about God, and then when the hard times hit, begin to think about what you know about God. Make yourself think about God. That's how you strengthen yourself in God. Now, I I think at different times, God, the Holy Spirit reaches into our minds and pulls out different aspects of the character of God to remind us, but there are always a few things that, that come to my mind when I when I run my head up against the wall, when, when there's no human hope, when there's nothing I can do apart from what God is going to do, first thing I always think of is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. There are no loose ends. As I've said before, there, there, there are no maverick molecules. There's no chaos. He's in control 
I've forgotten who said it. Someone said he's the blessed controller of all things. Everything's, uh, the world's not running amok. God's not pacing the floor and biting his fingernails and wondering what's going to happen next. He's in control. He's utterly, absolutely sovereign. David said, the Lord does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. The Heidelberg Catechism says, all things, even health and sickness, come to us not by chance, but by God's hand. So I just remind myself of the fact he brought on the problem so he can turn it around. There aren't any loose ends. There aren't any accidents. He's in control. I don't know how many of you have read the book of Job lately, but there is a phrase in there that just hits me right in the chops every time I I read it. All these terrible things happen to, to Job, one thing after another, Satan brings tragedy on him like bricks falling out of the back of a dump truck. Job, uh, Satan then appears before God. You remember what, what God said to Job? You moved me against my servant Job. Isn't that interesting? God takes responsibility for all the, all the things that happen to Job. Now, God is not evil. He doesn't have one. There, there's, he cannot be in any sense implicated in the evil that, that strikes us, but he takes responsibility for it. He permits it, screened through his love. John Calvin preached 159 sermons on the book of Job. How would you like to sit through that one? It's a couple of years worth of sermons on the, on the book of Job. And after every sermon, he concluded with the same phrase. Now we shall present ourselves before the face of God and bow in humble reverence. And I look at the world around me falling apart and I say, no, no, it's not falling apart. God's in control. And no matter what's happening to me, I need to bow, present myself before the face of God and bow in humble reverence. He is sovereign. The second thing I think about is that God is forgiving. Doesn't make any difference how far wrong I've gone. He forgives. If I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive my sin and, and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. As Petra says in one of their songs, I may have taken a thousand steps away from God, it only takes one step to return. It's just that it's contrition and repentance that, that opens God's heart to us. David had gone very far wrong, but but he was forgiven. And when God bears down on our conscience, you know, we're inclined to think of ourselves as disqualified and that we have to somehow work our way back into God's good graces. That's not true. It's not true. He forgives no matter how far wrong we've gone. Oswald Chambers says, God forgets away our sins. I love that phrase. He forgets away our sins. God is the best forgetter in the universe. As my father used to say, uh, quoting uh, that phrase, as far as the east is from the west, he, so far as he removed our sins from us and he has buried them in the deepest sea. And then he puts up a sign there that says, no, no fishing allowed. Won't let us go back and retrieve those, those sins. He forgives and he forgets. 
He doesn't forgive simply because he's loving. He couldn't do that. He forgives because he himself has paid the price for our sins. It's costly. Costly forgiveness. Cost him the agony of, of Calvary. It's on the basis of the cross that that he can he can forgive. But now his heart's open to you. As George McDonald says, take whatever forgiveness you need. That's what you need to know. You may think that your calamity is the result of your sin. It may very well be, but uh, God's heart is open to you. Take whatever forgiveness you, you need. He gives us a, a fresh and a better start. Uh, the third thing that goes through my mind is the fact that God uh, not only is sovereign, and God is not only forgiving, but God is working everything together for good. Uh, Paul says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What, what Paul is saying is that uh, it's God's plan to bring salvation to us in a very personal way. He calls us, he justifies us, sanctifies us, and as he's changing us every day, conforming us to the image of his son, and ultimately he's going to glorify us, make us precisely like his son. And, that, and nothing can break that process down. No one is lost in root. Everybody is uh, that, that belongs to the Savior. It's part of that process. That the good that God is to working. He, he's, Paul is not saying that everything that happens to us is good. The burning of Ziklag was not good. It was a tragedy. The capture of David's children is not good. It's horrible. He had no way of knowing if they were still alive. But when these uh, hard times come, we can comfort ourselves by saying that what really matters is that God is at work in us to produce that good thing that it's after, which is salvation in us. The whole process from beginning to end that will consummate in our, in our being with him forever. Uh, have any of you ever taken the tour through the Horseshoe Bend sawmill? It's really interesting. I've been through there a couple of times just for the fun of it. And, you know, those belts and pulleys and whistles and Things going in all different directions, and down down the chute comes this huge log, and these prongs flip the log over and strip the sides off, and then they flip it over again and cut it into lengths, and finally out out comes this wonderful, wonderfully finished uh, lumber. And I say that is amazing. And then you look up in the in the little glassed-in uh, uh, booth, and here's this fellow up there pushing buttons on a computer and pulling levers. And, He's the hand and the mind that's controlling it all. And I look at that thing and I say, well, some of those pulleys go this way and some go that way. And the board, boards sometimes seem to move in the wrong direction. And sometimes the log gets uh, tossed up in the air and it gets treated pretty roughly. And, and, and yet out the other end comes the product of the mind that's in that, in that, uh, in that booth. There's a mind controlling, a force directing, uh, a guiding hand. That's our Father's hand, you see. It's working all things out for good. Fourth thing I think about is the fact that uh, God loves me and he cares. God's sovereign. He's forgiving. He's for me. He's producing good in my life. And uh, underlying all of that is just the, the fact that God loves me. And he, he cares. Matters to him about me. He sees the sparrows fall. 
sees the sparrow fall, and he sees me. My mother used to have a little poem that hung over her desk. Some of you are familiar with it. It said, the robin to the sparrow, I would really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, oh, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. You realize that? That he really does care. He loves you like (laughs) you you can't believe. We had uh, a man come out from a ministry back east to minister to our staff this past week. Just had a great time together having our faith... uh, uh, refurbished, and uh, the, at the end of the day, he he uh, put a, a slide on the wall. So he ended his his uh, ministry to us, and it was a picture of Rembrandt's version of the Prodigal Son's return. I'd never seen it before. Uh, the father is pictured as blind. He has his hands on this dirty, filthy boy. And you, and you can see the love in his hands and the love in his face, but he's blind. He can't see. And the, the line that went through my mind as I saw that was, love is blind. God's love is blind. And he doesn't see the filth and the dirt. He doesn't, you know, he, he didn't see the son in the pig pen or the the results of the pig pen clinging to him, the defilement that he picked up in the far country. He just uh, put his hands on him. Just loved him. Cared for him. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. Now, he doesn't mean try to keep loving God. That's, that's not his point. It's keep your heart open to the fact that, that God loves you. The fifth thing that uh, I, I think about is uh, just to start reminding myself of some of the other promises of, of God. Think about his sovereignty. Think about the plan that he has for me, everything working together to produce good. Thinking about his forgiving heart. Thinking about his love and his, his care, his concern, his compassion for me. And then I begin to run through my mind like beads on a string, the, the promises that, that God has given F.B. Meyer talks about an old saint uh, that he knew, and he happened to wander into his uh, study one morning, and he could tell by the height of the candles, he said, that he'd been at it for a long time because the candles had burned down. He had his Bible open, and he was reading, and he was taking notes, and Meyer said, what are you doing? He said, I'm reading about the promises of God, and I'm writing down every promise because I don't want to miss one of them. That's what we need to do is just remind ourselves of what God has promised us. And again, I, you know, we have to know the word in order to know what, what he has legitimately promised. In Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there is an incident in, in Christian's life that vividly uh, illustrates this principle. Uh, Christian and Hopeful, who was his sidekick, were making their way toward the, the celestial city and... and uh, uh, it was the castle of the giant despair. And while they were asleep, the giant discovered them and uh, awakened them. And he said with a grim and surly voice, what, Who are you and, and what are you doing on my grounds? They, they said they were pilgrims and that they had lost their way. 
and uh, the giant accused them of trespassing them and dragged them off to a, a dark, a very dark dungeon where Bunyan says they lay for three days without one bit of bread or a drop of drink or any light or any to ask how they were. You ever feel like that? Been locked up in the dungeon despair. No food or water in, in any sense that your soul is being nourished and nobody gives a rip about you. No cards, no letters, no phone calls. Nobody even seems to know that, that you're alive. And, and, and you just sink deeper into, into despair. Uh, Bunyan talks about the terror of that place. All day they spent the time in nothing but sighs and bitter lamentations. Christians said, Brother, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether is best to live or to die out of hand. Shall we be ruled by the giant? And then uh, a little before day, Christian woke up. What a fool, he said. Here I am lying in a stinking dungeon when I can walk out in liberty. I have the key called promise in my pocket. I'm persuaded that it will open any lock in this castle. Then said hopeful, that's good news. Pluck it out of your bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard and with his key opened that door also. And then they went from one door to the next until they were able to escape, to escape from the from the giant despair, this terrible uh, dungeon in which they were they were imprisoned. But the key was in his bosom, his heart. The key was the promises that are found in in the Word of God. Annie Flint Johnson says, God has not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain, but God has promised strength for the day. Rest for your labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. Meyer goes on to tell another story about that old man. Years later, he found him on his deathbed. And the old man said, Mr. Meyer, I have forgotten the promises of God. And Meyer didn't know what to say. He was uh, just a young man at the time. He prayed. And then the thought came to him, which he shared with the old man. A, he says, you may have forgotten God's promises, but God himself has not forgotten them. He keeps his word, doesn't forget his promises. God gave uh, David a new promise. Look at verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Ephod had been conspicuous by its absence to this point. He hadn't inquired of the Lord. Ephod was the little pouch in which the Urim and Thummim were found. The symbolized for David, for us, uh, prayer, intercessory prayer and petition. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding 
party will I overtake them? Pursue them. He answered, you will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. And so David and his men took after this bunch of bandits, pursued them across the desert, and uh, discovered that they hadn't really traveled very far. They, They could well have escaped on their camels. But he found a young Egyptian slave that had been left behind, determined from him where the uh, uh, where the Amalekites were camped. And when they arrived in verse 16, there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. They were all drunk, lying around their, their camp. And David and his uh, group of 400 raided the party, were able to rout them. Many of them escaped on their camels, but uh, they left behind the women and the children and all the goods, and they were able to recapture their their families and and bring them home. And this was a turning point in David's life. We're not going to go much further in this study of David because uh, we'll have to come back to it later, probably next fall or maybe next winter. But we've, we've... we wanted you to, to see something of this period of David's life when he was under such such great pressure, fleeing from Saul. And and this is the is the turning point for David because at this juncture his fortunes began to change. He recovered his family, he went back to Siglac, he was waiting to see what would happen next, and he received the word that Saul had been slain in, in the Battle of Gilboa. And David then uh quickly uh, moved to a position of leadership within First Judah, and then uh, Israel was crowned king at Hebron. And that was another chapter of David's uh, life. But the turning point is that statement, David strengthened himself in God. Let me read something that Meyer said about this passage. Afflictions and trials are sometimes accumulate without intermission, intermission until it seems as though one more ounce of pressure and we will snap. Then just at what seems to be the last moment, God transforms the whole picture. What lessons in faith we learn. Human help is vain. The one resort is the flight of the lonely heart to God. Do we not all have such experiences? How can we meet with 10,000, him that cometh against us with 20,000? How can we escape our prison of trials when evil gates shut us in and keepers stand by with drawn swords? How can we struggle on any longer now that the last handful has been scraped from the barrel? How can we go on when our children are in rebellion, when we find the drug stash in our eldest son's desk? How can we go on when our spouse leaves us? How can we go on homeless? How can we go on unemployed or underemployed? How can we go on? Over against bereavement, failure, cherished plans, loss of material possessions, unfaithfulness of dear ones, we must do what David did. David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. Let's pray. Thank you for the gentle reminder again, Lord, that you're at work both to will and to do of your good pleasure. When we read passages like this, our hearts are drawn out towards you. Powerful attraction of your affection for us. 
your love for us, despite what we are and what we've done. We live on a, a continuum of grace, even in those times when you must judge and discipline. It is comes through a heart of love designed to bring us to the end of ourselves and draw us back into relationship with you. Thank you for these studies in the life of David. And just a reminder again that he's a man of like passions, very human emotions, a weak, frail, fragile person with human limitations, just like us. We're weak, but you are strong. We thank you for that strength that comes from you. Help us to keep our minds right. Help us to remember what really matters in those times when when there is no human help. We ask in Jesus' name.